The term last mile has traditionally been used within the world of telecommunications services in reference to the final portion of infrastructure required to connect an individual or household to an information services node. In practice, that might mean figuring out how to wire up a house for cable TV or getting internet connectivity to a particular apartment or house or business. It's a relatively simple thing, comparatively, to get internet connectivity to a company-owned antenna or other hub. It's a lot more difficult to then get that connectivity out to every single possible customer in a region because of the immense variability in what will be required to reach all of those people. In some cases, many miles of extra fiber optic cable is necessary to reach a remote farmhouse, and in others, cables have to be snaked around electrical poles and up and through old crumbling brick walls to get where they need to be so the people inside these buildings can access the information funneled through those cables. The last mile problem can be so problematic that some communication service entities will give up on dealing with issues on the ground and choose instead to utilize satellites and antennas perched on tall towers or on the sides of skyscrapers to shoot their signals to their customers wirelessly. And this despite the extra costs often associated with this method and the, quite often at least, reduced quality of those signals compared to the hardwired alternatives. In other cases, entire regions will go unserved by local purveyors of electricity and internet and waste collection because that last mile, that final bit of distance between them and the rest of the service provider's infrastructure is just too difficult or costly to traverse. The term last mile is also used in the world of transportation, especially in towns and cities where there are efficient mass transit hubs available. But for these offerings to be fully and optimally utilized, people must be able to get to and from them in the first place. And if they can take a train back to their neighborhood after work, but cannot easily cross the last mile between their closest train station and their home, in a lot of cases the train station will not be very heavily utilized, leading to price increases, insufficient ticket sales, and eventually the dilapidation of that station, and maybe even the whole train line. It's just easier for people to drive their cars instead because they don't want to face that final mile or two on one end or the other. It's not worth the hassle. In this way, even a beautiful and expensive and very efficient and effective mass transit system can increase local reliance on cars and other more expensive polluting and road-clogging options because that wonderful system gets them most of the way to where they need to be, but not the whole way. That little bit at the end, either near work or near home, serving as a fatal crack in an otherwise solid public utility. The term last mile has also come to be used, and very prominently of late, throughout the world of distribution networks and supply chain management. This means, in essence, that the last mile problem we see in shuttling information from place to place and shuffling humans about also applies to other things that we might want to ship. Our groceries, our takeout, our random boxes of whatever we bought on the internet. 
Supply chain management refers to how we orchestrate the flow of goods and services within our societies, and this includes a vast number of intermediary nodes, points on the larger web of interconnected systems that make up the larger macro system, all the little stops between point A and point B. But a simple way to think about supply chain management is that it's what helps a product get made out of raw materials, made available through an intermediary, and then delivered to the eventual customer, the end user of that product. There are a lot of smaller points along the way, but thinking in terms of a bunch of raw materials eventually turning into a smartphone that arrives on your doorstep gives you a good idea of what's involved here. It's everything from the beginning to the end of that cycle, after a product has been designed, developed, and then made into a replicable, sellable product. As with information and people, we tend to be very good at moving large numbers of whatever from place to place, hub to hub, and are able to justify investments in this component of the supply chain. Because doing so allows us to benefit from economies of scale. It's cheaper to move each person, each byte of information, each package. The more of these things we have, the more we move at once. If we can ship a thousand packages in a train car rather than just a dozen, the cost to ship each package is a lot lower because of how many we crammed into that train car, sharing the same resources. The same is true of people on a bus or bytes carried along a fiber optic cable compared to a substantially slower copper cable. This means that the in-between components of the supply chain, the moving of gobs of packages from New York to London or Beijing to Luxembourg, is actually relatively simple and inexpensive compared to the complexity and cost of then getting those shipped items from delivery hub, the airport, the train station, the central distribution warehouse, out to the people or businesses that ordered those items. According to a 2016 research report, the last mile accounts for about 53% of the total cost of shipping something, with the main trip from hub to hub coming in at 37%. Sorting, making up 6%, and collection, a mere 4%. More than half the overall cost of shipping a computer from China to Australia, then, will likely be the cost of getting that computer from the airport or warehouse to the door of the person who ordered it. Which is fairly unintuitive, seeing as how that's a really long flight, and there are a lot of steps in between production and delivery. Only a little over a third of the cost is that flight and associated costs because of those aforementioned economies of scale. They can ship a lot of packages all at once on a long-haul flight, and the systems they have in place allow the companies that perform these types of logistics and management to automate and partially automate a lot of the other necessities that might otherwise cost a great deal, or that did in the past. What I'd like to talk about today is a relatively new ambition within the world of supply chain management and the consequences of this ambition on the world of commerce, the layout of our cities, and on the environment. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Gizmodo, and it's entitled The Ruthless Reality of Amazon's One-Day Shipping. Depending on who you ask, Amazon is either a godsend or the devil. For many people, myself included, it's probably a bit of both. 
a company that provides us with an array of valuable services, some of which wouldn't have otherwise been available, lacking a company of their span and scale, and some of which are just superior in some way to the alternatives. But they're also, at times, a caricature of a sprawling corporation behaving badly, run by a CEO who sometimes acts more like a robber baron than a modern Silicon Valley-raised ideological entrepreneur. And both company and CEO often serve as bright neon signs pointing at the portions of government and the free market that didn't turn out exactly the way we might have hoped. The pieces that can be manipulated for sociopathic gain in potentially quite harmful ways. There have actually been efforts to quantify how much we benefit from companies like Amazon as part of that trade-off. A 2019 research paper entitled Assessing the Gains from E-Commerce found that as of 2017, Amazon and other similar e-commerce sites made consumers in the United States about 1% better off than they would otherwise be an increase in well-being that was determined to be equivalent to about $1,000 per year per household in additional spending. In other words, people can spend the same amount but get more satisfaction from what they buy because of the convenience of e-commerce services alongside the cost, time, and energy savings from not visiting a physical store and the increased variety of goods available from online retailers compared to brick-and-mortar options. That same study provided some interesting numbers regarding online shopping behavior and demographics. The researchers estimated, using a data set of over 36 billion transactions, that households with annual incomes of less than $50,000 make 3.4% of their purchases on the internet, while those which have incomes of greater than $50,000 make around 9.7% of their purchases online. In short, those who make more money tend to spend more money on the internet. The hypothesis about why this seems to be the case is that those with lower incomes will tend to have fewer and lower quality electronics and overall slower internet speeds, and thus their online experiences and online habits will be different from those with the higher-end version of these things. They'll tend to use them less, at least for non-free, non-cheap experiential purposes. And on the lower end of that lower-earning category, there are a large number of people who do not have bank accounts, or who do not have their banking services attached to the internet via some kind of credit or debit card, and such people, consequently, will not be able to shop online with the same casualness as those who primarily shop without touching cash or coins. There also seems to be an urban-rural divide when it comes to online spending, with people living in less densely populated portions of the United States conducting about 5.7% of their shopping online, compared to 9.9% in more urban, more densely populated areas. The thinking behind why this might be the case is twofold. First, more people in a smaller area tends to mean, statistically, higher average education levels and far more employment opportunities. There are beneficial network effects and adjacency effects in play in most urban areas around the world when compared to similar nearby rural areas. This also means that people living in urban areas tend to have, on average, higher incomes than in rural areas, 
and thus will tend to spend more in general, but also fall into the aforementioned categories of relatively wealthier people who have all the infrastructure required to spend more online more frequently. Second, it's also posited that people in more rural parts of the United States are less inclined to do as much shopping on the internet because they have other somewhat comparable options already available. Walmart, Costco, Target, these larger department store entities are one of the few business categories that can compete with Amazon in terms of pricing and selection. And though they're obviously not exactly the same thing, they do have benefits that online entities cannot match, like stocking ready-made, ready-to-eat food, in-person banking and medical and haircutting services, and the ability to buy whatever and have that thing that you just purchased immediately. That's kind of how shopping was for all of us until just recently, though these bigger retailers in particular have scaled up significantly, and even small, modern convenience stores have a lot more options in terms of what they stock, options from producers of things located around the world today, compared to even just a few decades ago. A lot of this shift across all aspects of how we shop, how we consume, has taken place in just the last 20 years. The Sears Roebuck catalog famously provided 19th and early 20th century Americans with their first glimpse of this contemporary future by offering mail-order services that surpassed anything else that had existed up until that point. Folks mostly bought their goods at general stores in the late 18 and early 1900s, but the advent of new shipping technologies, especially the expansion of railways, throughout the country, allowed Sears to ship everything from pocket watches to entire houses from one side of the United States to the other, giving people the ability to consume new things in new ways, opening up novel possibilities, novel access, and greater social expectations. All of a sudden, folks in small-town Nebraska were aware of what people in New York City were wearing, and that changed local culture dramatically, in some cases seemingly overnight. But although that shift was monumental by many metrics, it also took place over the course of not quite a century. The e-commerce revolution, on the other hand, the shift from in-person to online shopping, mostly happened from the year 2000 until the year 2010, with much of what has happened since, from 2010 until the day I'm recording this in early November 2019, representing refinements of what was developed and deployed in the previous decade. At times, very impressive and valuable refinements, but refinements nonetheless. The first online purchases reportedly took place on ARPANET in the early 1970s, ARPANET being a precursor to the internet, which at the time connected military bases and academic institutions to each other. And there's a rumor that the very first of these online handshake deals involved a student at Stanford selling cannabis to a student at MIT. But the first true shopping systems, which involved more than just an online message board and a couple of trusting strangers, were developed and launched in Europe. One in 1979 for the UK brand Tesco, and the next two in the early 80s in the UK and France. There were a series of e-commerce firsts throughout the 1980s, but the groundwork for expansion in this space was laid when Sir Tim Berners-Lee introduced the World Wide Web, the first web browser and editor in 1990. A company called Bookstacks Unlimited, operating out of Cleveland, Ohio, opened up on the web in 1992, 
before moving to the web address www.books.com in 1994 and adding the option of credit card processing. As a consequence of that leap, they attracted around half a million visitors each month, a staggering number for that moment in internet history. Netscape was launched the same year that Bookstacks made that domain name jump, 1994. And with Netscape, a far more user-friendly browser than had been previously available, came a slew of new internet users. Netscape also introduced SSL encryption, an online security protocol that prevents snooping on private details, like credit card numbers, from one end of a transaction to the other. This made payments conducted on the internet secure, which was vital for subsequent e-commerce technologies and systems. Also in 1994, the first secure online transaction was conducted. A Philadelphia man bought the Sting album, Ten Summoner's Tales, using his credit card through a site called NetMarket. The CD cost him $12.48 plus shipping. The following year, in 1995, Amazon.com was launched by Jeff Bezos. And to give context about that moment, eBay was also founded that year. AT&T was split up into three different companies because of its monopolist status. IBM's Deep Blue supercomputer was unveiled. The search engine AltaVista was launched. And the eventual founders of Google were, that same year, working on an early version of their search engine algorithm, which at the time was called Backrub. Sun Microsystems announced JavaScript and introduced Java. PHP was publicly released. The MP3 file extension was formally announced and the HTML 2.0 web standard was published, among many other new developments within the broader world of tech, but also the internet more specifically. There was a great deal of enthusiasm for tech companies bubbling up around the stock market, but especially in what was becoming known as Silicon Valley in Northern California, a region where a lot of the fundamentals of the computing age, particularly microprocessors, were being built, and where a lot of the people cashing out on their work and investments in those fundamental companies were setting up shop to invest in other emerging technologies, and the companies building and developing those technologies. In the year 2000, though, that bubble burst, and a lot of the business models that a lot of smart people had bet on, amidst a larger flurry of enthusiasm and fear of missing out, lost a whole lot of money, or went entirely kaput. Amazon survived this period, which later became known as the dot-com bubble of 2000, and went on to make their first yearly profit in 2003. Already, though, the company had gone public with an IPO, an initial public offering, in 1997. The stocks were worth $18 a piece at the time. And as of the day I'm recording this, Amazon stock prices are at almost exactly 100 times that, $1,800 per share. In 1999, Jeff Bezos was named Person of the Year for having popularized online shopping, something that already existed in many forms, but which he had helped to make a lot more accessible, intuitive, and useful through his company's refinement of everything from the shopping and shopping cart experience to the company's innovations in supply chain management. Part of why Amazon was able to innovate at that level and speed, though, was because it set profit expectations low from the beginning, telling investors not to expect profits for a long while, as Amazon would take essentially everything it earned and plow that money right back into the company. This helped Amazon survive the dot-com bubble and allowed it to scale quickly. 
The company diversified to products other than books in 1998, and soon after opened up its platform to sellers other than Amazon, making it more of a marketplace rather than just a store. In 2005, Amazon gambled on a service called Prime, which offered free delivery and streamlined the ordering process for people willing to pay for a yearly or monthly membership. This option locked customers into their platform and the continued reinvestment in Prime exclusive offerings. Adding everything from music to ebooks to streaming video content to that membership has allowed Amazon to create a position of primacy for itself and the shopping habits of a great many people around the world. In 2018, Amazon sold $258.22 billion worth of goods, which makes up about half of the total online sales for that year, and about 5% of total U.S. retail sales, all told. For context, the largest company in the world by revenue is Walmart, and they brought in $331.67 billion worth of sales in 2018 across their online and in-person sales channels. But Amazon is still growing fast, under its own steam and on the back of strategic acquisitions, like the recent purchase of the high-end grocery store chain, Whole Foods, and the 2009 purchase of online shoe retailer, Zappos. So they're bringing in new customers and buying new customers by purchasing these other brands and adding them to their larger portfolio. Despite not technically being the biggest retailer, though, it's probably fair to say that Amazon is one of the most influential forces in the world of retail today, for better and for worse, and it's been able to leverage the vast resources garnered from all those sales to flesh out services and programs that feed back into that consumption cycle. Amazon Prime, for instance, is a profit center unto itself, but it also incentivizes people to buy more things from Amazon, because although it's marketed as offering free shipping, customers know that they already paid for those shipping costs up front. And who doesn't want to get the most bang for their buck? Why pay some other entity for shipping costs when you've already paid Amazon? This brings us back around to that article from Gizmodo about Amazon's newish one-day shipping offerings. Amazon has been offering free two-day shipping on orders within the United States for people with Prime memberships since 2005. That offer extended to other markets around the world over the following years as Amazon increased its shipping infrastructure and in some cases made deals with existing warehouse owners and carriers in various locations to make that two-day promise a practical reality. But even in its infancy, before it had fully rolled out, this promise was kind of a big deal. To get things delivered in a week could still cost a small fortune at that moment in time. I remember distinctly being blown away at the idea of free two-day shipping when the membership first rolled out. And especially for small items, where you would generally end up paying more for slow shipping than for the product itself, this was kind of a game-changer. To have that kind of premium-feeling benefit that no one else was offering felt a little bit like living in the future, and all the other retailers were caught flat-footed and struggled to catch up. But catch up, they did. In the United States in particular, it is rare that a major retailer does not provide similar, fast, free shipping, at least for sales over a certain price point. And though that varies quite a bit from country to country, the reality is that this one-time luxury has now become the default. It's the vanilla online shopping experience in many places, 
So it no longer serves as the fancy pants double scoop mint chocolate chip upgrade it once seemed to be. And that loss of luster limits the lock-in effect Amazon once enjoyed. To shine itself back up and regain some of that lost razzle-dazzle, Amazon is attempting to up the ante even further. And to do that, in a world in which free two-day shipping has become the norm, they've decided to aim for free one-day shipping. And just as before, they are making it a quote-unquote free benefit for those with Amazon Prime memberships. The cost of the infrastructural upgrades required to make one-day shipping for so many people a reality has been, and will continue to be, immense. The company spent around $800 million last quarter, and will spend not quite double that in coming quarters, on top of its usual shipping-related investments, to get many final components in place before launching this new offering in the United States in late October 2019. These investments led to financial numbers that were impressive overall, but somewhat depressing to stock market investors. $70 billion in sales, but only $2.1 billion in profits. These sales numbers outpaced predictions, but the profit figures after expenses were a lot less than expected because of those additional investments. What those investment dollars bought Amazon, though, is a difficult-to-replicate new offering, which could prove to be a moat around their business model, at least until everyone else manages to catch up, which they almost certainly will within a few years. Though there's a good chance that for at least some of those competitors, Amazon will actually become their path to cheap or free one-day shipping, as Amazon seems to be building itself into an infrastructure company, both for real-world supply chains and for online services through their AWS subbrand. In the meantime, though, until they start providing Amazon as a service more widely and holistically, they'll be able to enjoy the benefits of these whiz-bang new offerings exclusively. Now, the first of these new offerings, as I mentioned, is free one-day shipping, which will replace Amazon's two-day Prime offering for most people in the United States, with the rest of the world to follow in the coming years. The second new offering is similar, but different. Free two-hour shipping on groceries for people within range of Amazon's Fresh service, which was previously a $15 monthly add-on to Prime, but which is now free provided you buy $35 worth of groceries in most areas, though that required price goes up to $50 in larger cities like New York. Those caveats in mind, though, this means Prime members can get groceries they order through Amazon delivered within hours, paying only for the products, no additional service charge, unless you choose to tip your delivery person. Removing this barrier seems likely to increase the number of people shopping for groceries on Amazon, and that the company is able to offer this service for free implies that they have made some serious improvements in their last-mile services within cities. Because being able to provide reliable in-city grocery delivery that arrives within a few hours of order is predicated almost exclusively on a company's last-mile capabilities. The third, and probably the least reported upon, but also the most groundbreaking in potentially both positive and negative ways, is that Amazon has been removing the barriers between ordering small, cheap things from their platform and getting them delivered quickly. Even if you have Prime, there have typically been categories of products, generally small, inexpensive products, like a single tube of chapstick or a small pack of batteries, things you generally find near the checkout lane at a convenience store, 
These have been considered add-on items, meaning that you would need to attach them to other orders for them to ship for free. They'd need to be a part of a larger Amazon sale adding up to about $25 in the United States before those items would ship. Over the last few months, though, Amazon has been quietly removing that distinction from many of their smaller products, to the point where, today, the vast majority of these types of items are now just regular products for the purposes of determining shipping cost and delivery time. Which means that you could conceivably log on to Amazon, order yourself a single tube of chapstick for a dollar, and then have that tube of chapstick arrive in your mailbox or at your apartment building's front desk the next day. While this may not seem like a big deal, especially compared to those other two offerings, which are the more obviously marketable, oh wow, how cool, novelty upgrades, it's worth considering how that third change might affect the way we buy things on a casual day-to-day basis. One of the major advantages that stores like Walmart and Costco and even just the convenience store down the street have over Amazon is the sense of immediacy and the accompanying ability to want just a pack of gum and to be able to pop out and get that desired gum in that single pack quantity. But if you've already paid into a system like Prime, which provides that lock-in effect, I mean, you've already paid for shipping. So you might as well just click that buy button rather than putting on pants and going down the street or driving the five or 10 minutes to the store, right? That capability, that knowledge of that capability could change a lot of habits, especially in an age where so much of what we buy is already ordered in this way, from furniture to lunch. This capability would seem to play right into that same reflex. Part of the moat Amazon is building for itself with these services is predicated on sprawling and reliable last-minute infrastructure. Investments they've made that allow them to take advantage of ultra-efficient shipping lanes they've been building out for years. They've been acquiring shipping licenses from China to the United States. They've launched a program through which Amazon employees are encouraged to quit and start up their own delivery truck company with an upfront investment from Amazon. They've got gig economy tie-ins with companies that have on-demand drivers and cyclists dropping off packages along with people and groceries and pizzas and curries. This component of the plan ate up a large share of that extra $800 million that Amazon spent last quarter, figuring out how to get packages from the airport or the warehouse to individuals cheaply and efficiently and constantly. The last mile made less grueling and expensive. The solutions that they have come up with are apparently enough to give them the confidence to move forward with this one-day delivery and small things delivery and grocery delivery plan. And they've built so many of their own internal capabilities that they recently canceled their business relationship with FedEx, the delivery partner that helped them begin offering two-day free delivery to customers over a decade ago. But these augmented capabilities are also almost certain to amplify several existing issues the company struggles with, one of which was prominently featured in a recent issue of the New York Times under the headline, 1.5 million packages a day, the internet brings chaos to New York streets. This piece gets into the not unique but definitely more intense than typical issues that New York City, and Manhattan in particular, experiences as a result of the boom in online shopping. The number of home deliveries alone tripled in this region from 2009 through 2017, and that's led to a situation in which the average speed of traffic in the busiest parts of Manhattan 
is only 7 miles per hour, or a little over 11 kilometers per hour, 23% slower than in 2010. Pollution and illegal parking is also booming in these areas, with FedEx, Fresh Direct, Peapod, and UPS alone accounting for 515,000 parking violations, leading to about $27 million in fines. Delivery trucks block bike lanes and sidewalks and crosswalks, and carbon dioxide emissions from cars and trucks in New York City grew by 27% from 1990 through 2017. It's become the largest contributor of driving-related carbon dioxide emissions in the United States, which is especially wild because New York City is such a geographically small area, just over 300 square miles of land. Though to be fair, over 8 million people live there, so it's quite a densely populated place by U.S. standards. The potential solutions here, those already being implemented to varying degrees and those that are being planned for the future, start with better logistics allowing companies to ship packages more concisely so that trucks don't have to go as far and so fewer trucks can be used to deliver more packages. There are also a great many new warehouses being built throughout New York City and the United States with the end goal for Amazon and its delivery industry competitors to have warehouses at strategic locations around New York City and the country so that one-day delivery is a simpler, less expensive matter for them while remaining relatively more expensive and difficult for their rivals. Logistically, this is a smart move, and it ensures more products are in range of more people more of the time, dramatically decreasing the amount of time it takes for a product to be shipped, and the amount of resources required to get product to consumer after it's been ordered. And there are many automated systems in place, both software and hardware-based, that help ensure the right things are at the right warehouse at the right time. So more often than not, these warehouses have pretty much just what they need on hand, and no more than that. These new warehouses, though, can dramatically change the landscape nearby, turning formerly vibrant neighborhoods into warehouse districts, and they take up space that might otherwise be used for housing, which can amplify the affordable housing issues that many large cities around the United States and the world are already experiencing. Part of the issue here, of course is that people are just buying a lot of things. About 15% of New York City households receive a package every single day. So while a lot of these problems are absolutely the responsibility of the companies vying for our online shopping dollars or competing to be the company delivering packages for the many businesses that we might buy from online, the larger issue is that we also just consume a whole lot of stuff. And the more diffuse our shopping, the more we shop in bits and pieces spread out over the course of a week rather than all at once, the more complexity, expense, and ultimately pollution and waste we create as a byproduct of our shopping. Shopping online is not inherently more polluting than shopping in a brick-and-mortar store, but the more shipments that are required to get a cluster of items from an Amazon warehouse to your home, the more packaging is used, the more fuel is consumed, and the more human hours and human energy is used all of which have larger consequences. And many of those consequences are concealed from us end-users. And that's part of what makes shopping online such a joy. We don't have to think about anything except the rush of buying a new whatever, and that makes us more likely to buy more things, something that Amazon and other online purveyors encourage by making the process as friction-free as possible on our end, even when that means greater effort and cost for them. 
and greater strain and damage to our cities and to the environment. There are a lot of ways to measure the kind of waste produced by the world of e-commerce, all of these methods imperfect. You could say that the production of the cardboard alone in the packages shipped in the United States each year require cutting down more than 1 billion trees. You could also say that as of 2017, when a paper entitled Optimizing Packaging for an E-Commerce World was published, it was found that products ordered online and delivered to our homes currently have four times as many touch points as those we buy from retail establishments. So from beginning to end along the supply chain, there is a lot more movement, a lot more handling, and a lot more resources required to get that product to us via online purveyors and shipping compared to popping over to the store and buying the same thing locally. This need not be the case, however. According to the University of Washington's Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center, like mass transit, buying things online and then having them shipped to us has the potential to be massively more efficient and less resource-intensive than all of us driving to the store, buying whatever, and then driving back home. But at the moment, we are not taking full advantage of that potential for efficiency. When delivery trucks choose their own drop-off times and optimize their delivery routes, for instance, a 2013 study found that they emit 20 to 75% less carbon dioxide per customer on average than each of us driving to a store and shopping in that more traditional way would produce. This benefit diminishes drastically when customers choose their delivery times, though, and it disappears almost entirely when smaller cars and other vehicles are used instead of larger, more efficient trucks and vans. It's also thought that as electric vehicle technologies improve, but also as the hub-and-spoke warehouse systems these companies are setting up regionally become more reliable, reducing the distance between warehouses and the vast majority of people to whom they'll be delivering things, it becomes more possible and economically beneficial to swap out all their gas-guzzling vehicles with electric versions of the same. The electricity provided by solar, wind, and other locally generated clean energy sources. Such a shift dramatically reduces issues like air pollution, though it still doesn't do much for road congestion. Better delivery logistics, though, like consolidating packages and utilizing more localized delivery hubs, like Amazon lockers and similar schemes, where people can pick up their packages at a nearby predictable location, rather than having the delivery vehicle come all the way to them, navigating their tiny street, spending time idling in front of their specific building for every single stop along their route and for every single package that needs to be delivered, that would take things even further in the right direction, right defined in this case in terms of less waste and congestion. But the writing on the wall with most of this, is that as we gain more in terms of pollution and congestion and noisiness and everything else, as we decrease those problems, we will almost certainly lose some of the conveniences many of us have come to take for granted. Having groceries delivered in an hour or two, having a single stick of gum delivered for some reason, having whatever we want delivered the next day, regardless of whether or not we actually need it that quickly, these are immense conveniences. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, these benefits seem to have measurably positive effects on our sense of satisfaction with life. 
which is part of why, I think, it's very easy to feel guilty about ordering tons of stuff online and to see all that packaging pile up on your floor and to feel like something is off about that, something is wrong. But it's still somehow a lot less simple to change our habits, to order fewer things, to order things so that they all arrive on the same day each week, reducing the number of trips and packages and resources utilized to get our stuff to us. It's not easy giving up that convenience once we've experienced it. And although I think it's possible that someday we could replicate the same conveniences in a less damaging way, whether that means printing everything that we want at home, atom by atom, in some kind of matter printer that Amazon or Neo-Amazon sells us, or whether it means recalibrating expectations so that we know most things will arrive at that big wall of lockers down the street. But emergency items or big pieces of furniture, things that are hard to move, will arrive at our door, delivered by some kind of postman drone or bicycle messenger, someone who's paid well enough and has few enough deliveries that the work is sustainable to them as well, rather than only benefiting the people on the customer side of the equation. It's possible that we'll reach that point, but in the meantime, we could revamp things in many possible ways once we've more clearly identified the problems and had the chance to roll out new infrastructure and systems to make better options a reality. For the moment, though, the incentives seem to be strongly lined up in favor of personal convenience over social well-being. Why should any one of us feel compelled to sacrifice a tiny joy like easy shopping and easy delivery, so that a mega corporation like Amazon can save a few bucks on shipping charges. Thankfully, it does seem like there is some movement in the other direction, which could someday balance out the significant tilt toward convenience over sustainability that we're seeing in the world of e-commerce today. In September of 2019, Jeff Bezos announced that Amazon would be undertaking a series of initiatives meant to help them reach the Paris Agreement goals 10 years earlier than planned. The Paris Agreement being a United Nations-driven framework agreed upon by UN members to reduce their collective greenhouse gas emissions in order to keep global average temperatures from increasing more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, a point at which it's generally agreed that a lot of things will go sideways and quickly. Bezos made that announcement alongside a challenge to other companies to do the same, saying, quote, We're done being in the middle of the herd on this issue. We've decided to use our size and scale to make a difference. If a company with as much physical infrastructure as Amazon, which delivers more than 10 billion items a year, can meet the Paris Agreement 10 years early, then any company can, end quote. The plans that have already been announced by Amazon on this matter have been quite impressive, actually, in terms of scale and ambition. Among them, an order for 100,000 electric delivery vehicles, which will be on roads beginning in 2021, and which alone is expected to reduce their carbon emissions by 4 million metric tons per year by 2030. They're also committing $100 million to reforestation efforts and have set the goal of converting 80% of the company's energy usage to renewables by 2024 and reaching 100% by 2030. The company will be documenting its progress on a new public-facing website alongside resources that other companies that want to make similar changes can use to do the same. The project is part of a larger climate pledge, a pledge that invites other signatories to agree to measure and report their greenhouse gas emissions 
regularly to decarbonize in a way that aligns with the Paris Agreement and to neutralize their remaining emissions, those that they cannot get rid of immediately, with quantifiable permanent offsets, like planting forests. This move by Amazon, viewed cynically, is a means of stemming the flow of employees who were leaving the company or refusing to work with them in the first place because of their vocally neutral but practically harmful impact on the environment. It also allows Amazon to claim a leadership position on a topic that is increasingly important to a huge swath of people around the world, customers as well as employees. These moves also look likely to lower overall monetary costs for the company over the long haul. And it's something they can almost uniquely afford to do, at least at this pace and scale, because of their immense stockpile of resources and the understanding that they have with their shareholders that sometimes they will make lower profits for a while as they invest in their next big move. Of course, you could also look at this commitment to achieve 100% renewables by 2030 and net zero carbon emissions by 2040 as just a really ambitious goal for a CEO and a group of company leaders who realized maybe a little late, arguably, but realized nonetheless that they had the power to make a major positive difference in the world. Amazon, after all, sets the tone for how e-commerce, delivery, and a bunch of other fields operate. They create new conveniences, and others are forced to follow or be run out of business. So it could be that they will set new standards when it comes to sustainability as well, and others will follow, by choice or otherwise, as tends to be the case when Amazon sets the direction and pace. Of course, it's important to remember that ultimately, Amazon's marketplace exists exclusively to sell more things to more people. And at some point, no matter how you dress that up, encouraging more people to consume more physical goods, many of which they probably don't need, is in opposition to the idea of sustainability at a fundamental level. It's worth celebrating moves that can help reduce societal ills, especially when the entities making those moves have the capacity to accomplish a whole lot because of their size and power. But it's also worth remembering that many of those same ills are the consequence of those very same entities' actions, an internal conflict that will almost certainly need to be sorted out one way or another before we can do away with these problems for good. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion by Gia Tolentino. This book was very enjoyable for a variety of reasons that are difficult to pin down. So I'm just going to read you the summary real quick, which I think does a better job of describing what it's actually about than I could do myself. So from that summary, quote, Trick Mirror is an enlightening, unforgettable trip through a river of self-delusion that surges just beneath the surface of our lives. This is a book about the incentives that shape us and how hard it is to see ourselves clearly in a culture that revolves around the self. In each essay, Gia writes about the cultural prisms that have shaped her, the rise of the nightmare social internet, the American scammer as millennial hero, the literary heroine's journey from brave to blank to bitter, the mandate that everything, including our bodies, should always be getting more efficient and beautiful until we die. End quote. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. 
You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. I have a small collection of email-based publications that you might want to check out. You can find those at understandery.com, askcolin.com, and brainlenses.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of those. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.